0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, so who has heard of KISS? I don't mean the band that has the painted faces and the terrible music. I mean like the, uh, the principle of KISS, right? Stands for, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. That's right. That's right. That, now you, you use that and you go, oh yeah, that's a funny thing to, to say to somebody. It's a help. But this was actually created as a design principle back in the 60s. Um, it, was, it was created by the U.S. military. Um, The man who started it, his name was Kelly Johnson, and uh, he was a a lead engineer for the Lockheed Skunk Works. So as somebody who loves the military and and loves aviation, the idea that uh, this principle like this came out of the... um, engineering firm that created the U2 and the SR71 Blackbird, like I geek out over those things, like that's, that's super cool. Um, um, but we use this term, we use this acronym um, to exemplify problem solving and to deal with issues. You know, we want to boil down problems down to very simple solutions. You know, Kelly Johnson, uh, he was famous for um, going to a, a table in a conference room and laying out a just a small bag of tools using this keep it simple, stupid principle and saying, okay, this is what a mechanic needs to have and be able to use to fix a jet engine. So how do we create a jet engine that can be fixed and re- repaired and worked on with just these tools? A jet engine's very complex. So if you've got something that complex but we're trying to boil it down to the issues and problems into simple things that we can use with just a few tools, that, is, that was like mind boggling. How do we do that? It's really tough. Um, if you remember the, the scene from Apollo 13, where they re- recognize that they're going to run out of oxygen if they don't help them fix the problem, and when they laid out what they had on there, they, they look at it and go, well, they can't fix the problem with these things. You know, they don't have enough of the stuff to do it, but these guys were smart enough to, how do we simplify it and fix it? And they did, um, which was Amazing. But this is what we want to do. We want the easiest, we want the fastest way to, to solve a problem. What is the reason for the problem? And what's the solution? Give them to me. I want to do it in the fewest steps possible. How can I do that? If a car, if, if our car goes bad, we don't want the solution to be you've got to replace the entire engine because something quit working. No, we want to have we want to be able to open up the owner's manual or the maintenance manual. We want to say, okay, this is what's bro- uh, not working. This must be broken. Fix this part, and you're done. Replace that. Easy. Done. Or, or maybe another example that's probably um, more um, applicable to you is your phone or you've got a computer problem. Things, it's not working right. Something's there's a problem. We don't want to just throw it out and buy a new one, you know. What's the simplest problem? What do you do usually if you call the IT department and say, my, my computer has an issue, what's the first thing they tell you to do? Reboot it. Do you realize 85% of problems are fixed by just restarting the thing? It's not a made-up percentage. It's true. That's crazy. That's super simple. Oh, That is what we want. We want the easiest fix. We want to go, what is quickest? And we have, the, we have this mentality when it comes to fixing problems in our life as well. We want the simplest, easiest fix when things go wrong. So take for an example, this is what we want. We're going to a friend's house. We haven't visited them before. They sent us directions. We're following directions. Before long, what the directions say we should see and what we're seeing don't match up. Seems like we're going in the wrong way. You call the friend, you say, this is what I'm seeing. They're like, oh, they walk you through and they go, ah, back there at that intersection, you took a left instead of a right. You're going the wrong way. We like that easy fix. All I gotta do is retrace my steps back there and I take the right, instead of the left, I'm fixed, I'm there, I end up at the, their house. That's what we want are those easy fixes. And we want it to be simple And we want it to be easy, simple and easy, quick. You know, or take my mom's wonderful roles. My mom's favorite holiday is is Thanksgiving. She loves having family at our house. We love to play games. We talk tell stories. And then, of course, there's the the feast that my mom just slaves over to uh, cook for us. And we love her cooking. It's one of those things that um, when I got married and that first Thanksgiving where we were not at my mom's house and we were at my in-law's house, inside it was like it was a little bit sad because I was not going to get the Thanksgiving dinner that I looked forward to. And it was great. My mother-in-law's a good cook too. But Um, there's a lot of comfort in going to Thanksgiving there. So one year we had, uh, I was young and we had like an especially large group of people coming to our house. We had my family and we had extended family and there were people from our church that were there. It's like we were crammed in there like sardines and we were having a really great time. And so we sit down for the meal and I remember my mom passes me the rolls, and I take the roll out, and and it's like this. And I was like, that doesn't look right. And then I take a bite, and it's like, hard. Like, it was hard. And uh, come to find out, she, in all of the hustle and bustle, had forgotten to put yeast in the rolls. So they didn't rise, and they tasted terrible, right? That's always a joke. Every Thanksgiving, we have put the yeast in the rolls, right? That's an easy fix. Here's the problem. They're flat and they taste terrible. Add yeast, it fixes it. That's what we want. We can just quickly figure out what it is. But we like quick and easy fixes and solutions to our problems as well. Problems not about cars and computers and baking. We want solutions to how life works. And when it doesn't work or when it's not flowing easily or when we are in conflict, we want the quick and easy fix. And so when problems arise, too often what we do is we take God's word, we take the Bible, and we try and use it like we would an owner's manual for our car, when we experience problems, we start looking through it to find the correct heading and the correct section and what's the part that needs to be identified and replaced to get me back running the way I want to be. So, when we're overwhelmed, we want to find the verse that addresses being overwhelmed. Give me that verse. I want to read it. I'm going to do it and then I'm going to stop feeling this way. That's that's what we want. Or I keep getting angry. We keep getting angry. So give me the section that says A's, under A's, there's anger. What's the verse? Tell me that verse. I'm going to read the verse. I'm going to say the verse, and that's going to fix my anger issue. Or flip through to the part that tells us what to do when we're fighting with our spouse. Oh, well, I think we've got communication problems. The way that we're talking isn't working. So what does section seven, sub part nine, tell us on how to communicate? And we find out communication actually isn't the problem. We got all kinds of communication, but we want that easy fix. I had an idea for a Bible translation, the, the keep it simple, stupid version, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. So it's not how the Bible works. Over these weeks... One of the things that I have tried to encourage you to be involved, to do is to be involved in each other's lives. How can we help one another? We want to be a resource to our fellow church members. How can we help to highlight areas where there may be idols in someone else's life? How do we identify those and, and help them say those are idols? And then what do we do? Too often, we look to the Bible like an owner's manual and use that in that situation. And, and what, comes, what ends up happening is it comes across as a platitude. Oh, you're, you're angry? Well, you know, Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. So stop it. And we make that joke about stop it, but too often, that's what our counsel looks like. Just stop it. The Bible says don't do it, so don't do it. And we're like, okay, thank you. And we walk away feeling discouraged. And and like, there's no help. There's no hope. And yes, the Bible does say don't do it, but it's so much richer than that. It's so much more full in its um, counsel to us. Our friends call us up. And they decide they're going to be open. They're going to be vulnerable with us. And they're going to reveal the struggles in their hearts. It's been something that they're, they don't, we don't like to do that, right? We don't like to really be open and vulnerable with other people. Because when I do that, I don't know what you're going to do with it. I can be fearful that you might use that against me. Or now the way you think about me is different than it was before. Because now you know the ugliness that's actually happening inside of me. But they they get the the courage to do that. And so they they come to you and they say they're they're viewing inappropriate stuff on the internet. Right? We look up verses on purity and we tell them to read those and stop it. And they walk away going, I want to stop it. That's why I came to you. I know those verses, right? Here's one. Our friend shares that their Christian walk just feels dry. And you've experienced this too. You know what this is like. They don't find the encouragement that they used to in their quiet times. When they serve at church, it just feels like a chore. And they don't feel joy in it. They don't want to pray. So we encourage them to live out the church, the Christian disciplines. Right? Let's Let's live out those disciplines if they do the things that they should do and go down that list and do them then they should start to feel better you get the picture right we like these simple easy quick ways to solve our issues and we don't like problems i don't like problems i don't like suffering we want out of them as fast as we can what can we do to get out of our problems? And it makes sense that we don't want to go through these things, right? Even when we can look back in our life and see all the ways God has walked us through these issues or the ways we've grown and changed through them, we don't want to go back through it again. We don't want to do that again there's no guarantee that life won't be hard. At a fifth, fifth grade teacher, Mrs. LaDuke. I'd say things like, that's not fair, or I didn't like that. I didn't like how things were going. And her response was always the same. Life's not fair. And it felt hurtless, and it felt mean. But boy, I, I needed that. I needed her to just say, life's not fair. Get over it. I didn't need to be coddled. I didn't need her to to fill my love tank. I needed to know that life can be cold and it can be hard. And if her delivery was cold and hard to get that message across, then that was needed. But I don't mean to convey that life stinks, then you die. No, that's definitely not the case, right? We can experience all kinds of joys here on earth. We can have a wonderful life, but we live in a Genesis 3 sin-cursed world as sinners living with a bunch of sinners. We believe uh, that we have new life because as believers we do have new life and we have new hearts, but we still have a flesh we must contend with on this side of glory. We can be pulled into this idea that the Christian life is too hard we must remember that we, we've got to live it by the Spirit of God. We don't do this alone. I'm going to show you here Galatians 5, 16 through 25. I'm going to read this here. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That was long. There's a lot in there. I want you to notice something. In verse 18, Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit. Here, what Paul is talking about, what he's emphasizing, is the Spirit's work in our life. John Piper says that the Holy Spirit is not a leader like the pace car in the Daytona 500 race. You know, if you watch a NASCAR race, they've got the pace car that drives out and gets things going, and they all follow it in line wherever there are. But no, he says being led by the Spirit is um, the Spirit is a leader like a locomotive on a train. We're not following it in our own strength. We're led by his power. So walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit means to stay hooked up to the divine source of power and go wherever he leads. Piper also says that if our Christian walk is to be a walk of love and joy and peace and so on, then walk by the Spirit must mean bear the fruit of the Spirit. But again, the Spirit's work is emphasized in this, not ours. He bears the fruit. And maybe this is, Paul gets this from Jesus. Maybe he gets this image from Jesus. Because you, you'll recall Jesus said in John 15, 4 through 5, to abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in, abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So if we are to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit means to abide in the vine, to keep yourself securely united in the living Christ. So don't cut yourself off from the flow of the Spirit, My point I'm getting at is that once we've identified our idols and we have worked out a repentance plan like we've talked about, we need to get on board with walking by the the Spirit like we see here in Galatians to find victory. Easier said than done, I know. I'm not wanting to give platitudes here. It's difficult because we get in our own ruts. We have habituated ourselves to certain ways of thinking and behavior. We train ourselves to respond and to retreat to a refuge, to respond in a way that denies the gospel and it pulls us away from Christ. I read the book by Robert O'Neill that was called The Operator. He's the Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden in the raid on his compound in in, um, 2011. I really enjoyed reading that book. It's not a religious book. Um, Roberts is not a, Robert O'Neill is not a believer, uh, so there's some language in there like you would expect from a military guy. But, but I was intrigued by all of what went in. You know, he, he spent probably the first entire half of that book describing what it even took to become a Navy SEAL. He described how he enlisted in the Navy, the selection process to enter into Bud's training, what they endured and worked through to become one of the most elite soldiers in the world. It was, it was interesting to me to, to read about how many years, years of testing and training it took before he was even deployed to use the skills that he gained, took a very long time. He wrote about all these various schools and classes he attended to learn what he needed to know to perform at this very high level. And then, once he became a Navy SEAL, then you get selected into what team of Navy SEALs that you, become, that you can join. And he was placed in SEAL Team 6, which is the elite of the elite. Over his career, he was deployed on many different combat missions, but in, in one of those chapters, he writes about going on one of his first missions in the streets of Afghanistan. He's uh, going on this mission with another soldier who was, this also was his very first combat mission. So this is the first time that they're in combat. The first time they get to use the skills and training that they have gained over these years. The guy he's with was in some of that training with him. They entered... Training together. So they are walking down this narrow alley, and um, he talks about how, as they're moving down the alley, they could communicate with almost no communication. It was this ability that he moves to one side, the other guy moves to the other. They pause, and both of them pause. Their movements are in sync. They didn't talk about this before they went in there. They knew the mission was to go down this alleyway to find. A person a high um, what do they call that a, a, a target of high value a high value target that's what it was so they're they're going to get this but but that's all they knew we're just going go to go they don't know what is around the corner, and so as they're walking down here in their moving, doing what they do with their their weapons, two combatants come around the corner, they both quickly respond with force, and it was like second nature. He says it was after that time that they uh, went back. He's thinking about this situation, and he w- was amazed that he gave what he felt like almost no thought to what just happened because he had, he had so trained been trained so well that when he actually went into combat, he responded the same way he had in all the training and things like that. It was just like That it just became second nature. It seemed natural to both of them, and it was because they built habits time after time. You know, you can you can see somebody who's been in the military. They've they've been trained and they have these habits that they they keep. And we need to be walking. We need to be working on our walking in the spirit with that same type of mindset. We need to establish habits in our own life so that we can consistently detect and destroy idols of the heart. You know, what are the habits? Pastor Brad in this chapter says that one habit to establish is this wartime mentality, that we can't think of finding and killing idols as a one time event, it's a lifelong battle. We have to remember that Christians experience battles within themselves. We have these battles. Now, it's not like we're at war all the time, like the physical war. But I'm thinking thoughts, and I don't want to think that thought. I did sin that I didn't want to sin. How do I do that? How do I stop? I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. A Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires, a Christian is a person who's at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. We do have conflict in our inner man. It's between what the Spirit wants and what the flesh wants. It isn't always bad to have internal conflict. I think we think that sometimes that if I have this conflict inside of me, there's something wrong. Well, the wrong part is, yes, we have sin that we have to deal with, but if there is conflict going on, that's great. The problem is when there's sin and no conflict. When we become okay with that, it isn't something that we're bothered by. Since Genesis 3, the Spirit has been here to do battle with our flesh. It's actually one of those things, if you're on the battlefield and you feel that you're at war, you should take heart. That's a sign of the indwelt Spirit working. Again, Piper says that when you take verses 16 and 17 together... The main point in that is not that there's war, but victory for the Spirit. Verse 16 says, when you walk by the Spirit, you will not let those bad desires come to maturity. When you walk by the Spirit, you nip the desires of the flesh in the bud. New God-centered desires crowd out old man-centered desires. Verse 16 promises victory over the desires of the flesh. Not that there won't be a war, but that the winner of that war will be the spirit. In this wartime mentality, we have to keep going back to the gospel. When we are on the battlefield, when we are on the battlefield, spirit against flesh, we want our automatic reactions to be to turn to the gospel. We should be like an elite force of soldiers, highly trained in the spiritual warfare, and our weapons are God's Word, the Holy Spirit, and other Christians. We train ourselves by going over the gospel all the time, time and time more of it, thinking about, focusing on the gospel. So you have a husband who gets angry at his wife for X, Y, Z, he's in the battle. What enemy is he going to battle against? The enemy he is at war with isn't his wife. She isn't the problem. He has to go to war with the desires of his heart. He has to go to the gospel. The gospel tells him that a good and perfect God died for him. And so his sin is the worst. The gospel reminds him that he doesn't deserve a life without problems. The Bible never tells us that we don't have a life without problems. The Son of God came to this earth to endure being lied about, betrayed, hated, mistreated, misunderstood, and killed. If that is what Jesus willingly endured so that we can have freedom, then our response to marriage problems must look very different. Or your work is stressful. You have a demanding boss. Work projects with tight timelines. Coworkers that are not helpful, but are vying for your job. You've got too much on your plate. Well, what does the gospel tell us there? We're in the battle. We need ammunition. Where do we go? Well, the gospel tells us that our life is not our own. We were bought with a price. Christ left the perfection of heaven to seek and save and serve us. Why would he do that? And he did it without complaint. He did it without dragging his feet. He did it without sabotaging us. Without giving us all these reasons, we should feel bad for needing his help because we really got ourselves into this mess. The gospel says, like in Galatians two twenty, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We need to establish a wartime mentality, but we also need to make choices that starve our idols. Every choice we make, big or small, it either feeds or starves your idols. So we have to get used to the idea that there are no little choices. All the big stuff that we go through started as little stuff. It started when we were complacent, or we excused it, or we thought it wouldn't hurt. All these little and big issues come from our heart. So the way we make choices to starve the idols, starve our idols, is one is live a commandment-oriented life instead of a feeling-oriented life. Our feelings lie to us. Feelings are important in many areas. But we cannot rely on them when it comes to matters of faith. You must learn to keep your feelings in in their place. I'm not against feelings. We have feelings because God gave them to us. Feelings are not a result of the fall. Since that is true, then we must learn to use them correctly. Correctly. And that means we can't live by them. We must not let our feelings rule us. To win the war against idols of your heart, you can't let the feelings be the force that drive your choices. Obedience for the glory of God has to be what drives your choices. Feelings will follow obedience. So you can obey your way into new feelings. A second way that we have this habit of um, making choices to our vitals is we have two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. Who here knows 2 Corinthians 5.9? I won't call on anyone. Somebody's got it. it's a super short one. Okay, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim, we make it our goal, we make it our purpose to please God, right? So that's saying we're either pleasing God or we're pleasing ourselves. It's only two choices. It's one or the other. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If we're not pleasing God, we're making provisions for the flesh. So often we make provisions for the flesh in little ways, by little choices, by little lies we tell ourselves or little lies that we believe. So I can please God or please myself. Don't please yourself. Keep your feelings tethered to the truth of God. It's God's word. Pastor Brad says in this chapter, the gospel should be like an IV bag that keeps your soul hydrated with living water, steadily dripping, the hope-giving, perspective-changing, growth-giving truth. This is truth, then, that will shape how you feel regardless of what's going on around you because it's based on the objective, unchanging truth of God's word instead of our ever-changing, easily defeated, deflated, and often misguided feelings. We are to exercise ourselves to godliness. As you cultivate the habit of pleasing God instead of pleasing yourself, it does get easier. It gets easier not easy, but not as hard as it feels at first. Maybe you've had that moment where you said, I am out of shape and I need to get back into shape. Or maybe it's never back into shape. It's like get into shape. I've never been there. So I want to get there. And so you do the, the things where you, I'm going to start lifting weights and you, you lift weights one day and you're sore and try it the next day, you lift weights, and before you know it, you can't wash your hair in the shower because your arms hurt, like so sore, like, oh my goodness, right? So that's when we quit. Well, my arms hurt. I'm gonna quit. Or you take up running, and you get down to the stop sign, and and, like, this feels great. You get to the next stop sign, you're like, I think I'm dead. I cannot make this. You're like, I haven't even made it halfway around the block, and I think I'm dying, right? It's tough, but I know, I know guys that run every single day, exercise, they ride bikes, there's all kinds of things. And they, they'll tell me, because I've experienced this too, that first 10 minutes, it's like, I really wanna quit. This isn't easy, this isn't, I, I don't really like this, but I've gotta push past that, I've gotta exercise that. I gotta keep doing it, keep exercising. So eventually, it doesn't hurt as bad, eventually, It becomes a little easier. It's not easy. Exercise isn't easy if you're doing it right. But it's easier. So we keep exercising and we reap what we sow. God's yoke is easy. Our circumstances may never change. But walking with God is is all the difference. If we choose to please ourselves, it makes it harder. Conflicts will rage on. Sometimes we're in conflict that we didn't start and we're trying to end. We're doing our best. But it seems like it'll never end. If we continue to sow truth, to seek to understand to live to glorify God, we live walking in the Spirit and not trying to please our flesh. The conflict may raise on, rage on, but we can glorify God in that. The third habit he says is to learn to work backward from the chaos in your life to your own idolatrous desires. You've got to learn to ask yourself good questions. Especially when it comes to your heart motivations. So, when the conflict hits, or you're in a struggle or you're unhappy, there's questions that you can ask yourself. So, what sin am I committing to get what I want? There's chaos, there's hardship in my life. What am I willing to do to get what I want? What sin am I committing? What do I feel that I deserve right now? What is it I think this is, I deserve this and I'm not getting it. Or what, am, what demands am I making? You will do this or. Why am I punishing this person? I'm punishing in some way. I refuse to talk to them. I blow up at them. I manipulate. I withhold. I unleash my anger. There's all kinds of ways we punish. So if you ask yourself these questions, pay attention to the answers you give. When this person doesn't meet my expectations, what am I telling myself? So my expectations are unmet. What's the internal dialogue look like in my mind? Usually, people will want to have a, a journal and say, well, I'm going to write that down. You're not going to do that while that's happening. I'll just tell you that. It's not going to happen. So take some time afterwards as you start to see these things going on. What, what was it that I was... Doing and what do I want? What so taking that out when you're outside of that things are quiet to take a moment to write those things down. On your handout, I think question number one is: have you identified idols in your life and list them? I think when you start to see the fruit of your life and recognize these idols that are going on, and then you go backwards from your chaos and start asking these questions you could probably have on one side of a sheet of paper the answers to those questions and on the other side, the idols that you have identified in your life. My guess is you can start drawing lines across to connect why you're doing what you're doing. It's not always a list of idols, sometimes just one. But I'm doing all of these different things to get that one thing. As you exercise these habits and keep the gospel in front of your eyes, along with practicing the spiritual disciplines, you will see your heart more clearly. You will have tools to fight these idols, and you'll be more joy-filled, able to respond well when trouble comes and not be tossed about by your feelings. Solomon, the wisest man besides Christ, right, on earth, he finishes up Ecclesiastes. You know, Ecclesiastes is a book about life and what we see in life and what to expect from life. And at the end of the book, the way he wraps up his Ecclesi- the, this whole book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, last two verses, he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that's what we're saying. If we walk by the Spirit instead of feeding the flesh, we will fear God and keep his commandments. And it will be a joy. To us. If you don't feel like it, like so many of us don't feel like it in the moment, we can pray to God to help us to think truth, think right things, and be able to do it even when we don't feel like it. Pray that God would help that obedience, the continued obedience. To, for our feelings to follow that I think that's something that through this class what I've hoped that I have been able to, to show you um, through the book that he wrote and um, just this teaching is that we can identify idols pretty quickly destroying them and finding victory over them will take time Um, So be in it for the long haul, be willing to fight it, um, and seek help if you need it.